Hey, good morning, FCF. We're continuing in our series called Turning Point. And turning points are those times in our life where we're about to make a decision or a set of decisions that whether we know it or don't know it, they're going to change the trajectory of our lives. To introduce today's message, I kind of want to borrow your imaginations. Imagine that you are an owner of a very, very large company. You have multiple contracts. And so you hire someone because you want to make sure that all of these contracts are legal, that the legal form is right, the legal language is right. So you hire what you believe is an ideal person. 90 days goes by. Now you're going to sit down and do the first review with this person. The person is excited. They feel as though they've done really well. They've built great relationships with the other people in the uh, workplace. The people love them. They've helped other people with their departments and their problems, and they've brought lots of solutions. They've been a servant to others. You know, they've made people coffee. They've kept their office spotless, all these kinds of things. So now they're excited to get their review. They sit down with you. And you look at the, the situation and you look at them and you say, you know, I'm sorry about what I have to tell you, but I'm going to have to terminate you. And they are stunned and amazed. They can't believe it. They're, they're like, why? You see the people here love me. You know how many people I've helped. You see what a servant I've been. I, I cannot understand this. Why would you be terminating me? And then you as the owner of the company say, well, I'm, I'm forced to terminate you because in the 90 days that you've been here, there is not a record of you ever looking at and making sure that the legal language and the legal form is appropriate in any contracts. And then you hand them a massive stack of contracts, none of which they've done anything with. And they continue to try to argue with you about all the other good things that they've done. And you finally say to them, but you don't understand what I hired you for. The priority, the priority of priorities, keep that term in mind, the priority of priorities you neglected. Therefore, every other priority that you felt like you fulfilled, as good as they might have been, don't matter because you neglected the priority of every other priority. We're going to look at a portion of Scripture now. We're going to pick right back up where we left the Israelites last week where they are about to reestablish priorities. But to reestablish priorities, they must reestablish the priority of priorities. We started this series looking at, at key junctures in the history of the nation of Israel. The first one was when, after 120 years of having kings that reigned over all the 12 tribes, Saul and then David and then Solomon, Solomon's young son, Rehoboam, with foolish decision-making, splits the kingdom. And so, the ten northern tribes become their own country, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, become theirs. We then picked up 208 years later. 208 years later, the northern kingdom had rebelled against God for the entire 208-year period, 19 kings, all of them ungodly. So God, keeping His covenant promises from Leviticus 26, allows them to be deported by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. because they were so misrepresenting Him and there was nothing He could do. The southern kingdom, though, still stayed intact for another 136 years, but we visited them as well. They also failed. They also resisted and rebelled against God, misrepresented Him, and after multiple warnings that He was going to allow the Babylonians to deport them for 70 years and keep them in captivity, finally it had to be done. Then last week, we followed where after the 70 years were over, Cyrus 
uh, a Persian king gave the edict that the Israelites, any of them that wanted to, could go back. They could go back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple of God. And this Persian ruler said that God had called him to tell them to go rebuild their temple and that he was going to supply whatever they needed. So that's where I want to pick up reading. And we're going to pick up our storyline in Ezra chapter 1 to get our ground. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, little interesting fact about Cyrus, in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, 175 years before the man gave this edict. He didn't exist, in other words. Isaiah prophesied the man's name and what he would do. God knows the future, and he's the only one that does. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. So here's his decree. He's, he's acknowledging that this God, the true God, had moved his heart, and now he was inviting the people after 70 years of being deported and living in captivity in Babylon, they could now go back. The people go back roughly around 50,000 in the first wave. And let me pick up in chapter 3, verse 6. This is where we left off last week. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says, On the first day of the seventh month, they began offering burnt offerings to the Lord through the foundation, excuse me, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not been laid. So they reestablished worship. That's a great thing. They're offering sacrifices, but still the foundation of the temple had not been laid. They've been there seven months. Let me pick up a little further down, reading in verse 10 and 11. In verse 10, now they've started working. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love endures, or His love to Israel endures forever. All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house was laid. Now let me give you an idea about the timeline of this. This is about four years of work, roughly, to get the foundation of the temple laid. The people are, are exuberant. They're celebrating. You can read on. Some are laughing. Some are crying. They're just so overwhelmed. So now, they're off to a good start, but then something happens. Let me pick, you up, pick up reading to you in chapter 4, verse 21. I'll tell you what happens first. Their enemies that were roundabout, once they saw that the foundation of the temple was established, their enemies start telling lies to the then ruling king of Persia that these are a dangerous people, they're going to be rebellious, the king won't be able to keep them under control. And so the king takes their, their instigation seriously. And in chapter 4, verse 21, we read this. It says, Now, this is the king, his words, Now issue an order to these men to... Stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt, and I so order it. Verse 24, the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, or Darius, king of Persia. Now let me just pause there. This pause, okay, so they get a good start. They lay the foundation. They're off to, to a really great start. 
about four years work, but all of a sudden now, dead stop. It's stopped. So let's start by asking ourselves: if you and I are in a position where we want to reestablish priorities, and to reestablish priorities, we must reestablish the priority of priorities. The temple was the manifest presence of the God who created all things and who reveals himself. And so it was the priority of priorities, these Jews knew it, to put God central once again, that, that all of life was to revolve around this God whose presence was manifest supremely at this point in history in this building called the temple. So what can you and I expect? If we come to a place in life where we realize somehow or another our priorities have gotten, gotten a little bit mixed, they've gotten off, mainly we realize that the priority of priorities, remember what Jesus said, he, he said, seek you first, John, I mean, Matthew 6, 33, he said, seek first, not second, not third, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. What did he mean the kingdom of God? It's the rule of God. I need to seek first his rule in my heart, in my life, on this earth, in the lives of others, and his righteousness. What is God's righteousness that I'm to seek first? It is the right behavior of God, but it's right because of what motivates God. I'm, I am to seek first and foremost in my life the kingdom of God, His interest, His rule in my life, His rule in the lives of others that will open their hearts to Him. And I am to seek character development to become righteous like God, that I do the right things because I'm motivated by sacrificial love as God does. That's the top priority. So we, we have it again, an example in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in, as in heaven. That's top priority. So if we've slipped, and it can happen to any of us, if we have slipped from centering our life around the priority of priorities, Christ, His kingdom, His will, His way, and so forth, how do we go about reestablishing it? And what can we expect? They were trying to reestablish uh, the priority of priorities. We see what they went through. What can we expect? Well, the first thing we can expect is, is similar to their experience. We can expect initial success. I mean, just let's think of a typical situation. You know, someone who was a Christ follower had some things happen. Maybe they got busy. Maybe they got distracted. Maybe they got discouraged. Who knows? But for whatever reason, they fell from their steadfastness and they lost that priority of priorities. Christ, His kingdom, His will was no longer prime. Maybe what manifested the process is they, they stopped going to church. They stopped being a part of the body of Christ. Maybe they stopped reading their Bible. Maybe they stopped praying. How long did this go on? Well, it might have went on for weeks, months, or decades. But at any rate, they slipped from their priority of priorities and so what is, going, what is it going to be like? What can they expect if suddenly an awakening comes, like the awakening that came to these people when the call of God came through Cyrus for them to go back and build the temple of God, reestablish the priority of priorities. What can you and I expect if we have slipped from our priorities? What can we expect is, is the same thing they expected. Initial success, okay? They go back, they, they, start, uh, they build the altar, they start offering sacrifices, they start worship. Then they, they launch into laying the foundation of the temple. It took years of work, but they did it. It was a wonderful success. If you and I have slipped from the priority of priorities and we decide, I know I've got to get back to that place uh, with God that is His will and, and for my good, 
you can expect initial success. In fact, you can expect things to go very, very well. For example, maybe you stopped, as I say, going to church, and so you decide, I'm going to start going again every Sunday, and you do initial success. You feel great. You're back at home. You, you have people welcoming you back, people you haven't seen for a while. Everything's going good. You, you crack open your Bible again. You start reading it. Initial success in reestablishing the priority of priorities. Typically, it goes pretty well. Listen to a passage from Nehemiah. This is about another building project that the Lord leads His people on. It's about the walls of Jerusalem. But it says this in Nehemiah 2.20. It says, The God of heaven will enable us to succeed. That's, that's the truth always. When we align our will with His will, the God of heaven will enable us to succeed. He says, The God of heaven will enable us to succeed. Therefore, we, His servants, will set about building. So, here we have this choice. Now, now we know that starting things... If we're honest, it's always easy. Uh, I mean, for example, maybe uh, we, we get the notion, we say, ah, oh, gee, you know, I gotta take better care of myself, and so, man, I'm, I'm gonna get in shape, and so, what do we do? <laughs> we go out, we buy the running shoes, and we buy the running clothes, or the gym clothes, and we get all the equipment. Maybe we, we take out the gym membership. Initially, it's easy. We're making real progress. It's exciting. We're getting on with it. Maybe we even get up one day, and we go out, and we run quarter mile, half mile, whatever it is we're able to do. Or maybe we go to the gym two days, three days, you know, for a whole week. Initial progress is easy when you decide, or I decide, I want to get in shape. But it starts to change sometimes. I wonder, I wonder how many of you would acknowledge that you could go back in the museum in your mind. And in the museum in your mind, if you chose to take this journey, which most of us don't want to take, you could find halls of unfinished projects in your life history. Things that you started. You started with a bang. You started with lots of energy. You started with a lot of zip. They were going to be priorities. They were going to be pursuits. They were going to be achievements, accomplishments. <laughs> but, but starting turned out to be a lot easier than continuing and finishing. The Israelites start. They get off to a start. And they had initial success. When you and I try to reestablish godly priorities, which starts with the priority of priorities, the centrality of Christ in every area of our life, expect initial success. God's with us. He's for us. It's going to be rather easy to put our feet back on the path of life, but we almost must expect eventual difficulties because the Israelites, they started out, they had initial success, but then all of a sudden, after about four years of success, the enemies of God start to work and they start to try to create slanderous reports about them. They, they wanted to distract them. They wanted to discourage them. They ultimately wanted to stop them. They wanted to make it impossible for them to maintain, follow this now, to maintain the priority of priorities. There are forces in this world of ours. The scripture is very honest. It says that our, our world is literally ruled, not by God right now, but by Satan. That he's created an entire system called the world system that has countermeasures to pull us away from the priority of priorities, pull us away from living the way that the loving, good God designed, and to draw us, to, like a magnet, to draw us into places of decision-making that are, that are not good for us or those around us. So what can you expect? What can I expect if I'm trying to reestablish priorities, godly priorities? I can expect it to go really easy, easy initially, initial success. But then I also must expect 
eventual difficulties. I must be prepared for the eventual difficulties. I must prepare for it to get harder. Listen to these words with Jesus, from Jesus, the last night he was with his disciples in John 16:33. This is the, um, the, the passion version. It says, "And everything I've taught you is so that the peace which is in me will be in you, and you will have great confidence as you rest in me. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrows. Let me repeat it again. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble. There's the difficulty, eventual difficulty, and sorrows. But you must be courageous, says Jesus, for I have conquered the world. You know, the thing about a lot of events is that when people start out at something, you can't tell the accomplished people, you can't tell the people that can do something from the people that can't do something. Let me give an example. Uh, we're all familiar with the Boston Marathon. There's about 30,000 people that come out for that race, which, which is just an amazing thing to think about. That's just too, too many people in one tiny little place. Anyway, 30,000 people come out to run the Boston Marathon. Let's suppose something. Let's suppose that out of the 30,000, three-quarters of them have never run a marathon at all. Three-quarters of them have never even trained to run a marathon at all. They're all in different degrees of, of being in and out of shape, but they are not marathoners. One-quarter are genuine marathoners. They have trained, they have run marathons before. Now, here's the situation. When that gun goes off and they all start running, 30,000 people, you are not going to be able to tell, I am not going to be able to tell who the real marathoners are from the non-marathoners. And, and so for the first half mile, for the first quarter mile, half mile, three quarters mile, maybe even a mile, a lot of those three quarter people that are not real marathoners, they're going to look just as good, just as competent, just as prepared as the real marathoners. But everything starts to change when you get into mile two and three and four and so on. That's when it becomes very clear who was prepared for the eventual difficulties and who never prepared for the eventual difficulties. These, the experience of these Israelites are, are a warning. They, they, are a, they are a roadmap for us that as we seek to reestablish godly priorities and the priority of priorities, Christ being central over every area of our life, we can expect it to initially go good, to be easy, but then we must equally expect it eventually to get hard. And if we're not prepared for that, it can throw us for a real loop. Now, you say, how hard can it get? Let me tell you what happened to the Israelites. This pause in the work on the temple of God goes far, far longer than they ever, ever would have dreamt. I'm going to show you just how far it went. Let me take you to a second consideration. So if it eventually, if it eventually gets difficult in trying to reestablish godly priorities, and especially the, the temple, the central place where God's presence is manifesting, where the presence of God for us today will be central in our lives. How can we succeed? If it gets harder as we go, how can we succeed? What will it take to succeed? The first thing that we have to, to understand is that we cannot, we will not succeed in our own strength. Now, I know we hear this stuff all the time in church world. Oh, you can't do anything in your own strength. It's one thing to hear it, it is an entirely different thing to understand the mechanics of it. Well, okay, if we can't succeed in our own strength, what exactly is it that we need and how do we receive this strength that is beyond our own? 
we have a tremendous example in this book of Ezra. Let me take you to Ezra chapter 5 now, and let me show you what happens with the Israelites. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, uh, the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, they hit these difficulties. There was a, there was a legal edict from the Persian ruler, stop the work, and then the prophets of God. And these prophets, we have their books in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have the book of Haggai, which I'm going to read you an excerpt from, and the book of Zechariah, which I'm going to read you an excerpt from. You're going to, you're going to see exactly what these prophets were saying to the people that gave them what they needed to break out of their lethargy and to get back at the work of God. So how can you and I succeed in establishing the priority of priorities and maintaining the priority of priorities, which is the centrality and the rule of Christ in every area of our life, how can we succeed? It's going to take strength beyond our own. We need divine inspiration. This is a subject you've heard me talk about before. Human beings were meant to live inspired lives. We were meant to be energized by the Word and the vision and the plans and the purposes and the love of God. That is the fuel that was meant to uh, in, you know, motivate our souls and fill us with enthusiasm in good seasons of life and bad seasons of life. These prophets, it says, they started speaking to the people the Word of God, and that stirred the people to get back to the work. Now, here's the part that I wanted to share with you. Listen to what they actually said. This is from the book of Zechariah, so we can, we can enjoy seeing. What, well, what did they say to the people that turned them around? Zechariah chapter 4, 6. Then he said to me, this was an angel giving a vision to Zechariah, This continuous supply of oil is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, prince of Judah, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, of whom the oil is a symbol, says, a symbol, says the Lord. Now listen to this, verse 7. Obstacles as great as mountains will disappear before you. You will rebuild the temple as you put the last stone in place. The people will shout, Beautiful, beautiful! Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. So here's God speaking through Zechariah to these Israelites, and he's saying, Listen, God's thrilled that you started this work, and He is going to give you the power you need to complete the work. He is prophesying in advance. He's saying, Zerubbabel that started this work, He's going to finish it. And you people, you're all going to be crying, beautiful, beautiful. When God calls us to do something, it is an invitation for development and growth and excitement in life, adventures in life. Any command that God gives, it comes with the power, the inherent power, that we can learn to do whatever He's commanded us so that we can develop and become who God wants us to become and do what He wants us to do. So here, they received divine inspiration. It motivated them. It energized them. Now, here's the interesting part. I want to share a little thing that I wrote down with you. Our vision of God 
determines our reaction to obstacles. Listen to what he said again. He said, obstacles, verse 7 of Zechariah 4, 4, chapter 4, verse 7, obstacles as great as mountains will disappear before you. You will rebuild the temple. And as you put the last stone in place, the people will shout, beautiful, beautiful. Here's the quote again. Our vision of God determines our reaction to obstacles. You are going to have obstacles. I am going to have obstacles as I seek to establish the priority of priorities in my life and to maintain it central, supreme in my life. And there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be things that just push their way into my life and your life, things that just kind of catch us off guard, that throw us for a loop, that wreck our routines, that turn us upside down, inside out. These people were facing a royal edict from a Persian empire, a very powerful militaristic Persian empire that said, don't you dare, don't you dare continue this building. And these prophets come along and they say, oh yes, do you do dare. Remember, it was God that finally or initially started this. And now it's God that's going to assure you that no matter what obstacles you face, They will be overcome and you'll finish it. You and I need divine inspiration if we're ever going to face the eventual difficulties and overcome the obstacles because obstacles there will be. There will be persons, places, things, situations. There will be obstacles from outside of our life. There will be obstacles from inside. We'll get discouraged. We'll get scared. We'll get confused. We'll falter in all kinds of ways. But as long as we keep an an influx of God's Word, His inspired Word to us, we can find the motivation, the energy that we need to persevere on. One little interesting insight. It is the Word of God that is the source of inspiration. But God has always chosen to use human instrumentality. Why? Because God's Word uses human instrumentality to make it dynamic and relevant to any group of people at any given time. God puts teachers and leaders in churches today so that they can take His Word, make it relevant and dynamic to the circumstances that the people of God are in in any given situation. It was when Haggai and Zechariah started taking God's Word It was God's Word, but they were the ones presenting it that it motivated the people. So how can we succeed? To establish priorities, we need divine inspiration. Our vision of God determines our reaction to obstacles. If I see a big God, obstacles look small. If my vision of God has diminished, the obstacles look overwhelming, terrifying, something that I want to just shrink back from. The second thing I'm going to need if I'm going to succeed is personal dedication. Now, we're going to go to Haggai now because Haggai gives us a really interesting insight as to what was going on. Now, here's the thing that I didn't tell you. When that work stopped, when that Persian edict came out, the work of God stopped for one year. No, it was more than one year. Two years? No, it was more than two years. Five years? No, it was more than five years. It was 15 years. 15 years, nothing. Have you ever seen housing developments or perhaps even a a high-rise building that was started and then because of something that went wrong, maybe economically, it's abandoned and it just sits there for years and years. It's kind of a sad, disgraceful looking thing. 15 years, just the raw foundation of the temple. What were the people doing for these 15 years? 
Because this thing we read in chapter 5 where Haggai and Zechariah start prophesying, this is 15 years later. I didn't give you that. That's the Paul Harvey version. That's the rest of the story. I'm going to give you even more of the rest of the story now. Listen to what Haggai says was going on. In the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, The Lord Almighty said to Haggai, These people say that it is not the right time to rebuild the temple. Whoa, wait a minute. They knew that Cyrus said it was the right time when they first came there. Now when they, they experienced some opposition, some very threatening opposition, they came to the conclusion it, it must not be the right time. Christian testimonies are funny for that. Oh, you know, God opened this door and everything just fell in place and everything went wonderful. And I just knew that God was with me because everything just kept falling in place. Tell that to the Apostle Paul once. I challenge you, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through the end of the chapter. Look at the list of things that he encountered in his first 22 years of serving Jesus and see if everything seemed to fall into place nice and tidy for him. I want to just tell you something. Anybody that's going to do a serious work for God, anybody that's going to put godly priorities together and keep the priority of priorities, the kingdom of God, His righteousness, in the central ruling place that it deserves, you are in for a fight. You are in for some opposition. Let me go on. The Lord Almighty said to Haggai, These people say, This is not the right time to rebuild the temple. The Lord then gave this message to the people through the prophet Haggai. My people, why should you be living in well-built houses while my temple lies in ruins? Listen to this one more time. This is the rest of the story, the Paul Harvey. This is the story behind the story. Why should you be living in well-built houses while my temple lies in ruins? Fifteen years. Fifteen years, man. They, they, were, they were building some comfortable pads while God's house just sat in a disgraceful state. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, along with the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the Lord their God. They responded favorably to the message of the prophet Haggai, who spoke just as the Lord their God had instructed him. And the people began to respect the Lord. Verse 13, I am with you, says the Lord. The Lord inspired everyone to work on the temple. Here we have it again. The Lord inspires through His Word, and His Word is communicated through His chosen instruments, human instruments, and that brings energy and it brings motivation. How much energy? How much motivation? As much as is necessary. How big is the obstacle? How big are the challenges? Is the discouragement inward? There's going to be power to deal with the inward discouragement. Is the discouragement outward? Is the opposition outward? He's going to give you the power, the uh, insights, whatever it is you need, to overcome those as well. But it comes through this divine inspiration, but then it's ultimately going to call for our personal dedication. You ever wonder about why God does things the way He does? I mean, why is it that God doesn't really do any work on this earth except through His people? You can go back to the establishment of the nation of Israel before He even put the tabernacle together. He says, I want to take up this massive offering. You know, you've got to supply lots of silver, lots of gold for the building of the tabernacle. And He said, but I only want it from those who have willing hearts. Well, why is it that God always wants, He tells His people what He wants to do, but then He waits until there are people that care enough about Him and about His work to do the work, to do the heavy lifting, to pay the cost financially, mentally, emotionally, relationally, whatever it takes. Why doesn't God just do a miracle? This temple, 
Tell me, could not God have just fabricated the temple on his own? Could he not have just done a miracle? Why did they have to go through this process? Why is it that God always waits for his people whose hearts are attuned to his? Well, because this is exactly the purpose, the eternal purpose of God for humanity, for the angelic communities. We are ultimately going to live in a harmonious community that forever and ever and ever we are going to be partners with God. And we're going to partner with God as He goes on doing His creative work in this universe. We don't know what it's going to be, but He wants people that authentically from our hearts are excited about Him and excited about His work. I, I, I get so bothered because I, I hear too many Christians, they're more concerned with transportation than they are transformation. We, well, you say, Randy, what are you talking about? I hear Christians that are more concerned about, man, i got to make sure I'm going to heaven. I just want to make sure that, I, that, I, that I'm going to go to heaven when I leave this earth. And they, they, they've brought God down to a place where it's like He's in the transportation business, but He's in the transformation business. business. God, listen, Listen, God authentically is going to have a people that like Him, that like Him for Himself, that admire Him, that are passionate about Him, that love His righteousness, that love it enough to sacrifice whatever they have to sacrifice, to work as hard as they have to work, to give as much as they have to give, to take all the risk they have to take, and they're going to, they're going to rely on Him to speak to them and inspire them and motivate them, and it's going to enable them to face whatever they have to face. But make no mistake, God wants people to care as much as He cares. And He's going to have such a people. He always has. He's always found people that care. And that's why God doesn't just do miraculous things all the time on earth. He wants us. This is preparation for eternity to come. So how can we succeed? Number one, we need divine inspiration. Number two, we need personal dedication. Let me share something with you about uh, divine inspiration. Inspiration is like manna. I only get a daily supply. You remember when the Lord started feeding the Israelites the manna in uh, Exodus chapter 16, this, this grain-like substance that rained down from heaven and fed them for the entire 40 years, the whole three and a half million of them? They could only gather enough for one day. The only day they could get two-day supply was on Friday because they would have enough for the Sabbath. But every day they had to get the food from heaven. It symbolized, I need inspiration from God every day. I, I, I only have enough energy, enough enthusiasm, enough strength for a 24-hour period. I am a being made by Christ, made for Christ, and I am meant to live in a constant, dependent, trusting, loving relationship with Him. That fuels me, that feeds me, that strengthens me, that enables me to establish godly priorities the priority of priorities, the centrality of Christ in every area of my life, and to maintain them against all obstacles, against all countercurrents in this world and any circumstance that I might ever face. Let me close this out with a, a little illustration that probably most of us will be familiar with. In fact, some of us will be more familiar with than, than others. Um, perhaps you've been to the eye doctor. You know, I'm assuming that a lot of us. Uh, wear glasses or we've had laser surgery or whatever it is, but we don't have perfect vision. So maybe you can remember that drill. It, it, I always thought it was kind of fun. You sit in that chair and um, they have you look at the chart and then the guy starts flipping the lenses over your eyes. And so the first set of lenses they put over your eyes, usually, man, it's so blurred, it's like a Coke bottle. You can't see anything. And then he flips another one. He says, is this any better? 
stillness are good. Is this any better? Is this any better? And it keeps going through them until you find, oh, 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 wait, 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 that's pretty good. And then they do the tricky thing. This one or this one? This one or this one? This one? It's almost like, come on, man, are you trying to trick me? What, what is the game here? And so then they do it with the other eye until finally you're like, whoa, whoa, that's it, that's it. They find lenses, just the right lens for each eye until suddenly everything is crystal clear and you're like, whoa, I want that. I, I, I had no idea how much I was not seeing until just now when these lenses came on my eyes. All right, follow where, where I'm going here. The lens, the lens through which we can see life, through which we can see ourselves, through which we can see every other priority. The lens is the presence of God. And if you look at the history of the presence of God, and, and, and I want to do a whole series on this, so I'm just going to go through this quickly. It started out with the Israelites, you know, His presence in the tabernacle. The tabernacle looked kind of rough on the outside, but it was spectacular with gold and silver on the inside. It was a picture of Christ. He was just human on the outside, but the inside was divinity. Then from the tabernacle, it went to the temple. Spectacular outside and inside. That's God in His full glory. I left something out. It started in Eden, where the very physical presence of God visited Adam and Eve periodically, perhaps every day. We can't be sure that that, of course, was lost through the slander of the wicked one and the distrust of Adam and Eve. So from the garden to the tabernacle to the temple, then from the temple, the big step is taken. Christ, the creator of the universe himself, comes and tabernacles amongst us. And we behold His glory as the only begotten of the Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So now we've got God, but in a tame, safe form, a physical form. It's still God in all of His glory in Jesus, but we don't have to be terrified of Him. We're, we're drawn to Him. We're attracted. He's gentle. He's kind. We finally get to see who He really is. The Scripture says that all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And, for, and Colossians 1.20 says that He's reconciling the whole universe to Himself through the cross of Christ. So follow with me again. You got Eden. You got the tabernacle. You got the temple. Then you have Christ. He is the temple, so to speak. But then it changes from that to the church. He dies and ascends, and He says, Now we are His body, His many-membered body. His Spirit lives within us. It says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. God's presence is to be manifest in us and through us, individually and corporately. Fast forward. It goes from the church to the book of Revelation, and all of it changes. In the book of Revelation, early on, you have the temple still, the temple of God. But then in Revelation chapter 22, I want to make sure I get this right, Ch chapter uh, 21, verse 22, it says something interesting. When the holy city comes down, there is no more temple. And when you read chapter 21 and 22, and do so sometime on your own, it says there's no more temple, but God Himself and the Lamb, who is Jesus, they are the temple. Their presence permeates everything and everyone and everything and everyone in the city. It's a city. It's not a temple anymore. It's a city that's the city of God where the presence of God, unlike Eden, which was on and off, will be given. It says that He will be face to face with us forever. We are to establish the priority of priorities now. God waits. He waits for hearts that want to establish Him as the central ruling priority in their life and who will fight to keep it so. But He promises in the future to come His presence face to face 
just like you can see my face and I can see yours, that face to face for all eternity, but it's going to be his full glory. He won't have to hide his glory anymore because we'll be transformed and we will be able to take in the full radiance of his glory. The holy city, read it on your own. Everything in it is full of the brilliance of God in full strength. But we have been transformed where we can now enjoy his presence to the fullness. And so eternity will be. So let's close with a couple questions. Could it, could it be that this message to you, it's, it's because God is telling some of us for the first time, man, you need to establish priorities. The priority of priorities, you're made by Christ and for Him. And until He's in the ruling central place in your life, everything else is going to just be this chaotic spinning in circles in your life. You're, you're like a, a planet that's fallen out of orbit. Others of us, maybe He's saying, you lost your first love. You lost your steadfastness. You've slipped from the priority of priorities. And now God's calling you back. And you know He is. You know He's giving you courage. You know He's motivating you today to reestablish those priorities and to fight whatever you have to fight through, no matter how long it takes until it's rebuilt. It took them a total of about eight years to rebuild this temple, about four for the foundation and about four for the finishing up after the 15-year lapse in between. It took struggle, it took inspiration, motivation, but they stuck with it ultimately. You may be, God is telling you, you've slipped from your steadfastness, but He loves you, He's for you. And you know He's calling you back to your steadfastness, to the, to the place where your heart will find rest and your soul will find peace. So I don't know what decision uh, the Spirit of God may be urging you to make just like he urged this group of Israelites to make through Haggai and Zechariah. But I know, I know he's called us all together to strengthen us, to encourage us, to establish the priority of priorities. Jesus as the king over our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our will, our bodies, our careers, our relationships, our economic uh, adventures in every part of our life, then sanity comes and rules and reigns. Will we have to struggle to gain it and maintain it? Yes, we will. Is it worth it? Eternally, eternally worth it. Will you pray with me, FCF? Father, we thank you that uh, you preserved this episode in your word that we can be strengthened, we can be encouraged, we can have our expectations adjusted to be realistic. Thank you for your word that inspires us, that energizes us, that changes the way we think, the way we feel, that gives us energy and enthusiasm without which we could not face uh, the resistance that our world and our society uh, brings in our pathway. I pray, Father, for those that, that might be the furthest from you today, that need that priority of priorities the most, those that might be discouraged and beaten down, may they hear the sound of your sweet, encouraging, welcoming voice this day. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.